Huh. I got caught out a little bit there by Earth Matters um, acknowledgements uh, ending a little bit early. So good morning, listeners. Um, welcome to this week's news from the drug war front, brought to you by uh, the Karma, Karma. Karma Cam yeah. Reliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy and the Connection. My name is Jeff. My co-presenter is Marion. Good morning. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, my darlings. How are you? I feel great today, um, despite the fact that I walked out of the house with the umbrella because I thought it was going to rain, but of course it's not going to rain because I brought the umbrella. Well, But if might... I hadn't brought the umbrella, it would have rained. You might so still... Be That's glad you the way it. to do it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my darlings, get yourselves a cup of coffee because we're going to tell you about karma. And if you haven't heard about karma, hang around and listen. If you have heard about karma, get your coffee now. Yeah. Okay? Otherwise, wait until we have some music. Yeah, look, um, the aim of the show is essentially to talk about karma, as Marin mentioned, which is Canberra's peer-based community-controlled drug use organisation which has uh, provided over two decades uh, of um, assistance and advocacy and support for um, drug users in the ACT. Uh, so as well as providing news about what's going on in the world of drugs and drug policies, um, the aim of the show is to report on, and also for Mary and I to have a discussion, as we do, about the um, harms and death caused by the prohibition of certain drugs that began... Uh, certainly in the modern era, with the 1961 United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. Uh, these policies remain largely unchanged. There are some countries that have um, made some improvements, but um, unfortunately ours isn't one of them. Well, <laughs> and the only reason they remain unchanged is despite the fact that they've signed up to the United Nations Convention, they've ignored it. Right? Well, you know, they still belong to the United Nations Convention. They've still, like Netherlands, they've still signed up to it. They just go, well, you know, that's that. Well, you know, that's got nothing to do with it. It's pra The practical matter is we need to do this. Yeah. Well, yeah? They've, they've used the... Um there, there are certain uh, allowances in, in in the convention to do, yeah. do certain things. It's well, not... particularly scientifically, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, unfortunately, um, our uh, government's policies have been pretty much just prohibition and more of the same. It's easier. You don't have to think that way, yeah? That's true. And the, you don't have to have debate. The bottom line is you don't have to debate, you don't have to think, it doesn't have to be a problem. Um, the only thing that ha really we have to do is if we've run out of uh, people to have a war against, and that often happens, <laughs> up come the drugs and yeah. we can have a war on them. <laughs> and that's what we've got, yeah? And it's When in doubt, have a war on drugs. And it never ends. That's yeah. right. It certainly hasn't for 60 years. No. So essentially that's uh, what the show is about and we will have some um, range of local, national and international stories um, and we will debate about uh, well, yeah. what we think needs to well, change. Well, even if we agree, we'll debate. <laughs> yeah, well, we, ten we tend to I agree. I want to say a shout-out to Mary and also a shout-out to Tabitha. Tabitha, this is the show you're meant to be listening to and I want you to get in touch with Monica. This is really important. The Jude Byrne Memorial Project, which is about women who have had their children taken by CYPS, right, by the Commonwealth Youth Protection Service or whatever they're called, um, by people effectively um, to dislocate families and stop them being put back together again because you can't put back together something that is totally broke. When you pull apart... Um, 
a jigsaw puzzle and throw one of the pieces out the door, like the connection that people have. Throw one of then you can't figure out the jigsaw puzzle completely. That's what you do to families when you pull them apart. Yeah, we need okay. a more enlightened attitude. Yep. Um. So the whole point is to learn through this program how to manage CYPS and how to talk to each other about the stuff you probably feel guilty about because as soon as somebody mentions to anybody that a, a person, a woman in particular, because we're talking largely about women who ha- who use drugs, a woman uses drugs is a bad equals bad parent, mm. right? Drug Sadly. using woman, yep. bad parent, yep. Yep. and automatically. So tab, get in touch with Monica six two five three three six four three. And Mary, I'm so sorry about your dad, and I'm sure everybody, all the listeners are too. All right, do you want to tell listeners about the range of services Why Carmen don't I? Because provide? I might as well keep on ravaging because I'm not going to let you butt in anyway, am I? <laughs> okay. So Karma uh, provides a ra- broad range of services such as client advocacy, peer treatment support. Now, peer means one person to another person on the same level, on the same political level, not from the top down to the bottom. So not our boss to our client. We are all on the same level, okay? Except that some of us have managed to manipulate the system a bit better than others and that's the only difference when no difference in what we do. Okay, so... Uh, creative arts mentoring and referrals we also provide. The Connection is Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. Karma and The Connection are located in the Churches Centre in Belconnen, located at 17, Shop 17, Level 1, Benjamin Way, 54 Benjamin Way. The drop-in is open again and the hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday. The office phone number is 62533643, as I just said. Still, we have a pretty big amount of COVID, like, what is it, Omnicrom brand number two? Yeah, another variant. Yeah, yeah. so we had, what, 850-odd yesterday yeah, or the day before? something like that. So it's still really high. I suspect it's in the... Uh, the lower age groups, you know, the people that are going to clubs and going to colleges and so on, the people that are actually associating with each other very... and and probably haven't had their bloody vaccines. Have you vaccines, people? At least that way you're not going to die, we hope, anyway. It's certainly not over, yeah. No, it isn't finished, and that's what's really important, that we have not finished with COVID. Co- Pandemic means around the world. It means everywhere. It doesn't mean a little bit of sickness here and a little bit of sickness there. Endemic means it is in one particular location and it stays in that particular location. Pandemic means everywhere. Like pansexual, that which is like our way of expressing the... the kind of sexuality that people use particular words for and we found that it became exhausting to use that word pan meaning generally everywhere okay all kinds of so keep that in mind 
no such thing as pandemic in one place. It's everywhere. And look, it's just started again in China. Yeah, yeah. shut down Shanghai. Uh, or yeah, Shanghai. absolutely. And they're not stupid about it. This is what drives me crazy. I just think this is amazing. It started in China. Well, it sounds looks like it's starting again. It's like a, it's you know gone around the world and it's come back again. Mm. Think about that. That's really important. Anyway, karma can assist people with a wide range of issues such as opioid maintenance treatment, such as methadone, buprenorphine, and more recently. Um, available long-acting injectable forms of buprenorphine, buvital and sublocade. Treatment for hepatitis C, which is really important because we've got a very low level of organ donation. But if you, you do the hepati- new hepatitis C treatment, your hepat- uh, your, hepat- your liver is in a condition that is available and suitable for transplantation, which I think is phenomenal. Mm, it's pretty that amazing. You, yeah, it's incredible. So it actually cures hepatitis C instead of killing you because that can happen with hepatitis C. Um, so the impact of stigma and discrimination, and that's really important. Everybody, just look at what happens with women, you know, drug user, drug-using Parent equals bad parent. Same, you know, they, it means the same thing. That's discrimination. That's stigma. The availability of detox and rehab services. So we do referrals and we'll also help you find a place there. And that's really important. It's very difficult because you're meant to ring up every bloody day if you want to get a place in rehab. And it's difficult to remember to ring up every day. If you don't ring up every day, you're not obviously not motivated. There's to nothing get better treatment. than having an advocate working so on your behalf. So having somebody that yeah, if you go and see somebody every day, or you just ring someone every day, they're there with you. If not in in reality, in spirit, and they will be with you to advocate for you to ring every day and be in contact with that residential treatment centre or detox centre. So anyway, all issues faced by people adversely impacted by prohibition and the war on people who use drugs. Yeah, um, there's no uh, karma clinic this Wednesday. Um, Normally we have the doctor and the nurse uh, in the clinic, but um, not this, not tomorrow, but um, hopefully back on again next week. But we'll um, keep, okay. keep people oh, up well, today. That's sad. Okay, but not this Thursday. Not, not tomorrow. Wednesday. The much anticipated Jude Burns women's group is about to start due to having to follow COVID safe protocols. Numbers are strictly limited. Tab, I hope you're listening to this. Um, so. Before we set dates for the upcoming group, we need to know the number of people attending. Tabitha, ring today or you'll miss out. As this is a closed group, uh, due to the nature of what is discussed, we invite you to call and put your name down on the list to secure your place. And I told you that last night, Tab, so do it. 62533643 and speak to Monica or leave a message for her. She will get back to you. Indeed. Okay? All right. This news from the Drug Warfront uh, uh, broadcast is um, based on stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world. 
Uh, many of the articles featured in the program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. The contents um, do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use and does not promote illegal activity. However, we recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and UN conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that, have, uh, that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people and essentially is... Um, advocating for the essential rights of um, people who use Yeah, and we have drugs. human rights, for crying out loud. You yeah. know, it's not like we aren't humans. No, no. So, you know, if we weren't humans, if we were... Gosh, if we weren't humans, we wouldn't be entitled to human rights, but we are humans. Yeah. And we must look at ourselves that way. And when we talk about peers, we talk about humans who use drugs or who do much the same things that or we do. lived experience yeah, and understand. absolutely lived experience. Use whatever terminology you like, but remember you are a human and are entitled to rights as a human. Indeed. Alright, look, I'll play this uh, song because last week we only um, managed to play half of it and I had a and couple of people... And you love it. Well, a couple <laughs> of people said um, they were disappointed that yeah. it wasn't played in full. And it's, it's a fabulous song anyway. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. It's uh, Warren Zevon's uh, Carmelita. This is Warren Zebon. All right, that was Warren Zebon and Karma Leader. It's 12 minutes to 11, and you're listening to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by uh, Karma and The Connection. And, yeah. Marion, you're uh, going to mention Dave and Damo's next naloxone yeah, workshop. Yeah, Karma's uh, restarted the Australia's first opioid overdose recognition and response with naloxone training. The next workshop will be held in the United Care Early Morning Centre in Civic at 2 p.m. on Tuesday, April the 5th. That's next Tuesday. The workshop participants are trained to recognise the risk factors and symptoms of opioid overdose and are shown how to respond to an overdose, overdose using naloxone. And I would really exhort people to do it because it is a really handy tool to have up your sleeve. Having, uh, I always have two um, puffers of naloxone in my bag so that I can give one to someone else or use one and keep one with me. But it's really important to have it on you. I think everybody should have it, whether you use drugs or you don't use drugs or whether you know, know someone who uses drugs or if you don't know anyone who uses drugs. If you see someone on the ground who looks like they might be having a seizure or looks like they might be asleep or dying, they may well be having an overdose. If you stick that um, a nasal spray of naloxone up their nose, it won't do anything bad to them. If they're having an overdose, it will reverse the effects of opioids. If they're not having an overdose, it'll do nothing. It won't hurt. So do that. Anyway, so enrol by ringing... Jeff or I'm sorry, Dave or Damo. Jeff's here with me. Don't ring Jeff because he's here. Um, Dave or Damo on six two five three three six four three, and you get thirty bucks for doing it, troops. So, acquiring a skill, acquiring a kit of naloxone, 
and knowing how to stop people from dying, like being a knight in shining armour, is something that I can tell you from personal experience is important. Mm. You and very really powerful. need to, yeah, oh, mm. absolutely. It's really important and it's very good for you. It makes you feel better and you can teach other people can do it. You can teach other people to do it, I beg your pardon. So don't think that you're the only one. And it's peer education, yeah. my darling. The very the very essence of peer education is people teaching other people how to do something to save your friend's or your own life. Mm. You're teaching someone to save your life, yeah? And you're teaching them not by saying, you're dumb and I'm smart, you're teaching them to say, I want you to be able to use this if I happen to overdose. Yeah, and the nasal spray is so easy to it's use. Such yeah. a, but all you do is take the back off and stick it up their nose and squirt mm. it. Don't easy. test it. Right? Oh, don't waste it. Yeah. If you test it, you yeah. waste yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it works. Okay. If you miss out on a place in the first workshop, don't worry. Fear not. Karma will be holding regular naloxone training workshops at the Early Morning Centre and at various other locations for the foreseeable future. So it hasn't stopped and it won't stop. It's going to keep on going. If you uh, want a take-home kit and you're unable to attend the workshop groups, you can call or visit Karma to arrange a naloxone brief intervention. Uh, where you'll be shown how to use naloxone to reverse overdose and be supplied with one or more to not take home naloxone kits. You don't get thirty bucks for that one, by the way, because you don't. The training takes about an hour, so mm. you're actually getting paid for attending the workshop, attending the doing... workshop, and giving your hour up to the training. So the brief intervention takes. 10 minutes, you get naloxone to take away with you. If you want to take two, ask for another one. And you will have the information nonetheless still to educate other peers Indeed. on how to do it. So don't think that just because you don't get the 30 bucks, you don't don't have the skills to train anybody else. You do. Okay. All right, um, a couple of stories uh, caught my attention about uh, illegal drug, alcohol, um, and the first one is um, in relation to an increase in domestic violence being associated with a change in late-night alcohol sales in New South Wales. Yeah, surprise, surprise, hey. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. How long, you know, how often have we been saying, look, not only have we found out recently, and when I say found out recently, I mean I found out recently that... Um, Alcohol has a great role to play in cancer, mm. right, in the incidence of cancer in men in particular. Um, but we've also found in this article that yep. we go on to now. Yeah, basically it says uh, the extension of late-night trading hours for bottle shops in New South Wales has been linked to an increase in domestic violent uh, assaults. The State's Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research, or BOXAR, has found the extension of trading hours for takeaway alcohol and home-delivered alcohol, quote, was associated with a small but statistically significant increase in domestic violence assaults. In December 2016, the New South Wales government allowed bottle shops and alcohol home delivery services across the state to trade for an extra hour until 11pm. 
Boxar now estimates an additional 1,120 domestic violence assaults occurred in the 38 months after the hours were extended. It's great, isn't it? Home delivery, domestic violence. That's great. It's Excellent. It, really well thought out. Well, <laughs> actually, one thing about the slap at the Oscars about Will Smith, you know, which is sort of caused yeah. all this huge coverage. Well, what about how many women that are uh, either yeah. maimed or oh, killed? And it wouldn't be a slap like that, would no, it? It'd, it'd be, be a, belt. a punch. Yeah. Or a, yeah. Um, in the case of bottle shops, the change reversed a, st- a statewide ban on takeaway alcohol sales after 10pm, which was introduced alongside the Kings Cross and Sydney Central Business District lockout laws back in 2014. Mm. The Bureau's research released last Thursday assessed the impact of trading hours extension on domestic and non-domestic assaults recorded by New South Wales Police. In the three years after the new trading hours were introduced, the rate of domestic assaults increased by 0.4% per month in New South Wales, translating to an additional 1,120 assaults. The increase was more pronounced after 10pm, lending support to the proposition that the rise was due to the policy change, Boscar concluded. There was no significant change in other assaults. Boscar Executive Director Jackie Fitzgerald said the research added to the, quote, limited knowledge about what might work to reduce domestic violence. Quote, many studies have shown that longer trading hours for pubs and nightclubs increase alcohol consumption and related harms, alcohol consumption and related harms, she said. However, few studies have examined violence associated with increased trading hours or package or, I'm sorry, for packaged liquor outlets. Well, it's very hard to actually um, get support for changes to alcohol availability or even harm reduction messaging or... Just not interested. No. It's... Not um, the minute you mention harm reduction, they say, yeah, it's all right, we put it on the bottle. Yeah, drink the, responsibly. You know, the, uh, yeah, <laughs> drink responsibly. <laughs> and don't, th- you know, don't break the bottle and stick it under somebody's tide. Good heavens. We've got it covered. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Look, um, there's a, another alcohol bomb. We mightn't have time to finish it before the 11 o'clock news, but no, it is but quite we'll interesting. give it a bill, mm. yeah? So that's the just 5%? Yeah, yeah. Just 5% of Aussies consume more than one-third of the nation's alcohol. This is by Jack Revell, Drugs Rap, uh, March 25th. This is really interesting. A recent report has shone a light on a serious name on the serious nature of overindulgence in Aussie drinking culture by revealing that just 5% of Australians drink over a third of all alcohol sold. That's phenomenal. The research published by La Trobe University's Centre for Alcohol Policy Research also found that Australia's heaviest category of drinkers, the top 5%, consume almost eight drinks a day each. Good heavens. It's troubling news that Luke Hutchins of the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education, who commissioned uh, the study, said should prompt uh, controls on alcohol consumption and advertising for at-risk drinkers. There we go, over there. Quote, alcohol has devastating impact on families and communities across the countries, contributing to a range of short-term and long-term harms, including 
uh, increased anxiety, injury, chronic diseases such as cancer and family violence, Hutchins said. Like we've been talking about. Exactly. He argues that alcohol companies are aware of these issues and are exploiting people by profiting of those, should be, from those who drink uh, at unsafe levels. And in fact... The Australian Hotels Association have said, it's all right, we've got that covered. We were talking about this before. Mm. They've said, we've got it on the bottle, mm. you know, drink responsibly. Yeah. We have harm Excellent. reduction messages. Yeah, that's yeah. harm reduction. Yeah. Excellent. Well done, those people. These profits come at the... He argues, yeah, alcohol companies are aware of exploiting people. These profits come at the expense of the health and well-being of families and communities across Australia, he said. Quote, it has never been easier for alcohol companies to target people who drink heavily and who might be experiencing alcohol dependence. By design, alcohol companies are using digital marketing to easily identify and target people based on purchasing history to push their products around the clock. Yeah, look, I just think it's particularly interesting that um, that amount of alcohol is consumed by that smaller percentage. It's phenomenal. It's just huge. 5% of Australians are drinking... Over a third of the total. Over a third of the total. And 1,120 are just crazy. Yeah. And yet it's a legal drug and it causes the majority of harm in in driving, in domestic violence. I mean, I know that when Professor Tony Vinson... Yep. Was doing his research. He found all that out. Yep. Yeah. No. Anyway, just because the legal drug does mean it doesn't cause problems. Absolutely. We shall return after the eleven o'clock news, Uh, which is now. All right. Welcome back to this week's news on the drug war front, brought to you by the Canberra Alliance for Minimisation and Advocacy, Karma, and the Connection, which is uh, Karma's um, peer-based service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, clients. Um, I'd like at this point just to give a uh, shout out to Two Double X uh, People Powered Radio. Um, this show has gone to air on Two Double X for fifteen or so years, and they've been a great supporter of ours and many other shows um, that p- p- present an uh, alternative perspective to that that you receive on mainstream media. Okay, this next piece is also from Jack Ravel's Drugs Wrap uh, website, March the twenty fifth. Uh, new international male testing to stop male order drugs and weapons. The Home Affairs uh, Minister, Karen Andrews, has announced that the federal government is employing a new national forensic rapid laboratory to detect incoming international mail containing drugs. The custom-built lab, based in Sydney, will use new world-leading capabilities to scan mail in real time. The rapid lab, lab test will screen 300 suspected packages each week, giving Australian Federal Police, quote, unparalleled opportunities to intercept illicit drugs illicit goods. We're cracking down on the smugglers who are targeting Australia by hiding their imports alongside large volumes of legitimate mail, Karen Andrews said. Under our leadership, total funding to the Australian Federal Police has increased to $1.7 billion, whilst in the last federal budget, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission received an almost $52 million boost to combat serious organised criminals. And she ends with a quote, This significant investment has ensured the development of this impressive new capability. Using this real-time rapid testing capability will keep legitimate mail flowing and keep Australians safe from illicit drugs, chemicals, firearms and weapons. 
So uh, another increase in funding to interdiction and, um, uh, yeah, prohibition efforts um, rather than harm reduction, which is uh, interesting. But as we've said many times, the um, percentage of funding that goes to harm reduction is of the order of about 2%. Okay, I might go to a song. This is Nirvana and their classic uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana. All right, that was Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit from the Nevermind album. Okay, you're listening to news from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion in the 2 X studio. I thought we'd do this um, story from the United States. We've done quite a few stories about the pharmaceutical companies that have been um, taken to court for excessively selling OxyContin and other well, prescriptions. Promoting OxyContin Promote, yeah. with the doctors so that it makes it valuable, you know, more... Uh, uh, profitable for them yeah. to uh, prescribe OxyContin and that kind of marketing ought to be illegal. If It's certainly unethical if it's not illegal. And huge amounts of money was made. So now that Massive amounts of money and now they've been taken to court and they have to repay those people who have developed drug use disorder from... Uh, the production, the um, prescription That's of right. OxyContin. Yep, and similar uh, yeah. pharmaceutical opiates, which is still an opiate, you know, yeah. whether it's legal or illegal Absolutely. or manufactured by a pharmaceutical company. Although, as we've said, um, it would be much better to have a safe supply and people be able to get, you know, a known product um, yeah, rather least than buy it off the black market. Well, and at least they know what's in it and they know what quantities in it and nonetheless that what we would be asking for in reality would be a program that prescribed opioids for people who are already dependent mm. on opioids. That's what we would prefer rather than charging doctors for prescribing it. The best idea is really to let them prescribe it yeah. and then you have at least contact with those people who are already dependent upon the kinds of drugs that everybody doesn't want them to be dependent on. And the sad thing now, Marion, is it's sort of gone too much the other way with doctors being... Yeah, they're being deregistered yeah, for doing stuff like that, and that's just crazy. Monitored by bureaucrats as yeah. to their prescribing patterns and, you know... Yeah. And, and it's not as if – and the people – look, the one doctor that we know of in particular that has been monitored was actually prescribing to people who were using it legitimately. It, she was pres – her prescribing patterns were legitimate, were reasonable, and she was just providing it to those people and reducing them mm. on their doses – but using it for pain relief that they had been suffering for years and she was pres prescribing it in a most ethical fashion and now she's under um, scrutiny by the alcohol and drug you know, people. And it's very difficult it's for people to find doctors that are prepared to see them through. Absolutely. Um, and that's because they have to jump through hoops yeah. like we would have to if yeah. we were provided... You know, but we have, Indeed. if we got it illegally, we still have to jump through hoops. But see what you think about this uh, perspective from the United States, given that they were one of the original architects of the modern drug war. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, by Elizabeth Chiarello from The Conversation, March the 22nd. Drugs that treat opioid use disorder are a good use for multi-billion dollar settlement funds. 
States, cities, counties and tribal governments across the US will soon receive a windfall through several major opioid settlements. Drug distributors and manufacturers, including Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family members who own it, will relinquish a total of about $32 billion US dollars for their role in the uh, overdose crisis. Other litigation could yield more funds. I'm a sociologist who studies how the overdose crisis affects patient care. My, my research shows why these funds cannot come quickly enough for the communities poised to receive them. Opioid overdoses soared 28.5% to a record high of 100,306. Gee, that's a lot of people, Marion. That is. In the 12 months ending April 2021. In 12 months. In 12 that's months. That's a lot, yeah. Uh, and that's according to the most recent data. But two decades after this crisis began, only 6.5% of Americans with substance use disorders receive any kind of treatment. And only 30% of those who receive help receive medications that are, are effective at treating opioid use disorders. Mm. In my view, money spent increasing access to methadone and buprenorphine, drugs backed with very strong evidence, would significantly narrow this treatment gap. The settlements could help because they recommend that at least some of those billions uh, fund treatment. However, state legislatures will ultimately decide where most of this money goes. And I wonder what that would be. Well, more likely, what, more yeah. law enforcement? More and, for the coppers, yeah? Yeah, well, depend on the states. and They probably will make it absolutely mandatory to employ one person in particular to uh, supervise doctors who are under scrutiny yeah, well, that's... for prescribing in... St- so-called unethical ways. That has happened in Mm. some states, yeah. If settlements lead to a significant increase in treatment, it would mark an improvement over what happened to the big tobacco settlements reached back in 1998. Most of the funds from those deals that were supposed to support smoking cessation and prevention have instead padded state budgets and funded unrelated projects. They just went into well, of course, consolidated revenue. Yeah. yeah, three drugs are prescribed for opioid use disorder. Ensuring that the uh, settlement funds support what they're supposed to pay for is only one hurdle. A separate challenge. Six, seven. Yep. A separate challenge is defining what counts as treatment, including who can provide it. The, vast, the field is vast and varied. Treatment can come in a pill or consist of talk therapy. It can require a residential rehab stint or outpatient programs. Anyone from physicians to peers can provide this care, and it's hard to determine what will work for a specific person. While no approach works for everyone, clear evidence suggests that more people should have access to medications for opioid use disorder. It might seem strange that the best treatment for people hooked on drugs is another drug. However, providing methadone and buprenorphine isn't just substituting one drug for another. These medications interrupt chaotic drug use and remove the highs and lows of addiction. They regulate the body just as antidepressants antidepressants and insulin do. The FDA, the Federal Drugs Agency, um, has approved three drugs, methadone, a solution taken by mouth, dispensed in specialised clinics, buprenorphine, a tablet or film taken in doctor's offices, this is in America, remember, and naltrexone, a pill or injection physicians may administer. Their costs vary. 
buprenorphine and methadone, which reduce, yeah, that's a, a, the Yanks as well, but it costs like $6,250 a year. Wow. It's buprenorphine and methadone in the States. Naltrexone, which blocks the feelings of euphoria. Um, euphoria opioids create costs about $14,000 annually. These costs include related services like office visits and counselling. It's a real problem in the United States that Medicare uh, doesn't exist effectively over there. They used to call it, their version of it was called Obamacare under uh, Dodo or, you know, Donald Trump. Um, and that it's really quite different from Medicare over here. Although Medicare is more likely trying to become more like the American version, given the, although they're talking about uh, changing Medicare at the moment. A study found that patients on methadone and buprenorphine were significantly less likely, significantly less likely to die by overdose than patients who didn't take them. Well, that makes sense. Methadone was associated with a 53% reduction in overdose risk and buprenorphine was associated with a 37% decline. In contrast, people who took naltrexone were just as likely to overdose as those taking no medication. Well, <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, who would take naltrexone voluntarily when it's a... It's like the opposite yeah, of not... an opioid. It's an antagonist, yeah. yeah. More research is needed to determine whether naltrexone makes a difference, mm. quite clearly. That's an understatement. Yeah. Uh, next subheading is evidence for detox and inpatient programs. Research suggests that residential programs, which can cost as much as $60,000 for 90 days of inpatient rehab, and other non-medical approaches are less effective at treating opioid use disorder than drugs. <laughs> Actually, I remember some time ago there was some research put out that something in the region of uh, 15% of people that went through residential treatment programs were so had long-term success. Success, in inverted commas, in, yeah. yeah, yeah. A study <clears throat> that reviewed different kinds of treatments found that patients who got detoxification or intensive behavioural health therapy were as likely to overdose or need acute care as those who received no treatment at all. Sadly, some people enrolled uh, in patient abstinence-based programs may even experience harm because someone with an opioid use disorder is vulnerable to relapse right after their treatment ends. Since abstaining from drugs altogether lowers tolerance, taking the same amount of a substance as before rehab just increases overdose risks. And many people do that as well, we know, and we've seen... Uh, and know of people who have died yeah. straight after being in rehab or being in jail, Indeed. which also makes it difficult to get hold of, of drugs. Doesn't mean you can't get drugs, just makes it harder and more <clears throat> expensive. And if you have not been using drugs at all and suddenly use, use them and use them at the rate that you used before you stopped using drugs, you are more likely You're at to a higher overdose. Risk, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you use it alone because when you come out of jail or come out of rehab, you're unlikely to be honest about your drug use. Mm. So you might have it alcohol, which is often a precursor to having um, opioids because it reduces your... Um, not only your tolerance, but your um, 
what is it, your your resistance mm. to wanting to use drugs. Yeah, you'll be more than likely to say, Well, I might as well, well have, have a, a go. Pack, yeah. yeah. I'll try <laughs> once yeah. because, you know, once won't hurt me. Yeah. But it does because you use it at the same dose and you never know when you buy street drugs. And we've said this time and again, you don't know the quality and the quantity and, you know, the purity when you, you know, let alone the price, when you try a drug for the first time. We always suggest that people try small amounts first mm. to see what it's like yep. um, and then have a little bit more if they want to get a bit stoned. And this is one of the problems we say every time with the black market time. and prohibition. It's That's right. And if you are going to use drugs and you haven't used drugs for a long time, tell somebody and ask them if they Indeed. will ring you or be with you yeah. and have some naltrexone ready. Naltrexone, mm. I always do that. Okay. Um, I lost a page, Jeffrey. What page are we uh, up to? Seven. Cost isn't the only obstacle. Oh, okay. If medication works as well for treating opioid dis- use disorders, why is it so hard for people who might need help to get these drugs? I see four main barriers. Okay. First, federal laws are... Tightly restrict distribution. Methadone used to treat opioid use disorders in the US since 1972 can be provided only in federally, this is in the states, in federally certified opioid treatment programs. And physicians who prescribe it must register annually with the Drug Enforcement, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. Patients getting methadone must attend counselling and visit a clinic daily to receive a single dose. People on methadone call it liquid handcuffs because of the strict rules they must follow to get it. Some restrictions have relaxed during the COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government now allows allows states to apply for exemption that permits treatment programs to provide up to a month's supply to take home. Many patients say they like not having to make daily trips to a clinic. What a surprise. Some restrictions um, have relaxed during the COVID-19 pandemic. We've done all that. A second barrier is that Physicians are reluctant to prescribe buprenorphine, which the FDA approved to treat opioid use disorders in 2002. Physicians can prescribe buprenorphine from their offices as long as they get a DEA or Drug Enforcement Administration waiver. Until 2021, doctors had to complete eight hours of training to obtain waivers, but as of 2021, they can treat up to 30 patients without it. Still, fewer than 10% of general practitioners prescribe buprenorphine, and those who do see an average of only eight patients each month. Physicians say more education and resources would make them more likely to prescribe it. More education and resources. What a surprise. So they're more likely to prescribe it, yeah. Yeah, investing in harm reduction and education. Yeah. and education. And it would be peer education. That means doctor on doctor. That's, the, that's what peers are, okay? They're at the same level. Keep that in mind. 
Uh, pharmacists could also take on this task. Pilot studies have shown that they can effectively treat patients with buprenorphine to get uh, through collaboration with physicians. If scaled up, pharmacy-based programs could significantly expand access. Pharmacists in Canada, England and elsewhere already provide methadone and pharmacy organisations in the US have called for similar programs. They've, you notice they haven't mentioned uh, Australia there because it isn't present in Australia. They can't prescribe it here. Um However, some pharmacists shy away from dispensing buprenorphine because they fear being targeted by law enforcement. Uh, in Australia, they would fear being targeted by users. They really do not consider, in the main, drug users or opioid-dependent users as real clients. It tend to be, in the main, and I am being general about generalist about this, I am not being specific, simply saying that they tend to be quite discriminatory about it and those people who are dependent or use methadone and get it uh, from their pharmacy will actually have it provided to them and they go to the end of the queue of those people, you know, people who come into the pharmacy, the real clients, that is the people who get prescriptions made up from the doctor, they're the ones that get treated first and the people who are on methadone tend to go to the end of the queue. That doesn't happen all the time. No. But it has happened in the past there are regularly. Some there are some that are that, very good, yeah. but there are some that are notorious at being very discriminatory yeah. against well, users. as we say, stigma and discrimination is a big Still part of rife. the picture here. Yeah. Okay. Um, the third barrier is although patients run a high risk of dying after surviving an overdose, most emergency departments send them away without helping them to find long-term treatment. The other thing that's really important about that, I think, is that most people that are, particularly when you use uh, naloxone to give to people, they don't realise that they have overdosed. They've effectively died and been brought back. They don't, unless you tell them that they have overdosed, they, they don't know. know. No, a lot of people so even... So you have to tell them. Yeah. Don't, don't even believe you after no, telling them. No, yeah. no, you've got to tell them several times and they don't believe. You can show them the naloxone. You know, the empty files and say, these are the ones I used on, on you. You. Yeah. you died. You were dead and I brought you back to life. They don't believe you. And when that's another reason why the training is so important. Mm. You sit, not just because you sit around with them for three quarters of an hour because of the short half-life of the naloxone, not only because of that, but because you have to talk to them and make sure they understand that they died from an opioid overdose. And keep an eye and on someone. Keep an call eye an ambulance. If because... The, the opioid will last longer than naloxone mm. will. That's right. In you know the blood, what's it called? The blood, the drug blood level. Anyway, will be will remain high or higher for the opioid than it will for the naloxone. So you need to stay with people for at least three quarters of an hour after you've given them the naloxone, and you will learn that in the training, if you mm. do that training with the opioid overdose and 
Responds with naloxone. Responds with naloxone program. That's so hard to say. It's a mouthful, but really it's worth needs doing. A, yeah, it's worth doing, but it needs a new title, Dave, really. Just call it naloxone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Using naloxone for, for saving people's lives. That's even worse. Sorry. Okay, emergency medicine physicians I have interviewed tell me they don't always have, don't always, don't have ways to make these referrals. So they revive patients from overdose and discharge them without additional care. Some hospitals see this as a missed opportunity. Del Santon Medical Centre in Austin, Texas, and Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital have developed programs to put people on buprenorphine after an overdose and to connect them to physicians authorised to prescribe it long-term, expanding access to treatment based in emergency departments would reduce the the, um, risk of overdose death. Finally, studies show that harm reduction organisations such as syringe exchange programs and overdose prevention centres, along with efforts to distribute and administer the drug naloxone to quickly reverse an opioid overdose, can expedite the start of treatment for opioid use disorders. And that's really important Mm, to actually, you know, whether you're in the States or here, it doesn't matter it's about making contact yeah. with the user and making contact with the mainstream medical profession. Um, and that's really important because we find that so many of the people that we deal with do not go to the mainstream medical centres because they fear or they've had the bad discrimination. Or, yeah, yeah, they've had bad experiences in the past, but they fear having them again. Yeah. Okay, so that's the end of it, isn't it? Have I got more to go? Are you sitting there waiting for me to do more, are you? Uh, just one more paragraph on. Oh, okie dokie. God, you know better than I do. On page, what are we? Nine. Nine, are we? Seven, eight, eleven, I'm up to I'm doing no, I'll finish really it off. Well. However, political it. opposition to these programs persists, even in West Virginia oh, right. and the other places hardest hit by All the overdose crisis. It, yeah. When programs manage to take root, Two. they are underfunded. Many kinds of programs will compete for the funds made available through these settlements, but the research is clear. Medications for opioid use disorder offer a substantial return on investment. To be sure, these are chronic, relapsing conditions. People struggling with them need an array of services to get their lives on track. To be sure, to be sure. Still, medications are a a critical tool. Americans have lost more than uh, 1 million loved ones to overdoses since 1999. I believe that states would save lives if they used money from legal settlements to make medications that treat opioid use disorders much more widely available. And Elizabeth Chiarello is an associate professor of sociology at St. Louis University. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, 100,000 people dying in 12 months is, is just staggering. unbelievable, isn't it? You it's know, appalling. That, what is it? Gee, 12, it's, you know, 10,000 a month pretty much, 9,000 a month. Should be an outcry. It's ridiculous. Should be an a- absolute, you know, clamouring for yeah. attention. But, yeah. But there isn't. No, no, well, they're, they're busy with the Ukraine at the moment, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, it's distracted from all the <laughs> real problems. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
All right, might play a quick song. This is The, the Libertines and uh, Road to Ruin, The Libertines. All right, that was The Libertines and uh, Road to Ruin. Okay, it's about uh, 21 minutes to midday. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion. We certainly are, and we're on 2XX 98.3, a public radio, I might add, and if you feel that you would like to become a member of 2XX or participate in some of their activities or become a volunteer with 2XX, um, please get in touch with them. Um, they need volunteers. It is a, such a useful tool for people to be able to express their own opinions, not go through mainstream media and extra, express the crap that you get from mainstream media like the Herald Sun, who will tell you interesting stories like... Drugs found in Richmond. Yeah, you know when it. You know, you don't know what the story is. We want intelligent debate. We'll just give debate. you the yeah. hard line. Yeah. What we want to do is get people speaking intelligently and articulately about stuff that has meaning for them, and that's what Two Double X can do. Allow you to provide your opinion on what's happening in your life and in your community and especially what position you wish to take on it and only 2XX will allow you to do that. That's community radio is so important. That's right. Okay, so why European drug gangs love Guernsey and this is by Rebecca Tidy from Balterface.me. Hannah Wiley... Hannah Willey and Carly Wellington drove off the ferry towards Guernsey's customs checkpoint. Inside their Audi, there was 1.2 kilos of cocaine and 4 kilos of cannabis. The drugs had been doubled the vacuum, a double vacuum packed, then dipped in white spirit to hide their scent from the sniffer dogs. But it was no use as a border agency officially pulled the girls over for questioning while his colleagues deftly searched the vehicle. It wasn't long before the officers found the island's biggest ever Class A drug haul behind a door panel and discovered they would net the the pair a combined total of 20 years imprisonment. Whoa, that's a stiff sentence. Sure is. The young women belonged to a well-established Cornish agency crime group, OCG, suspected of making regular drug importations to Guernsey. The Crown Prosecutor later alleged that they were sent to earn they were set to earn a huge ten thousand pounds from this endeavour alone. Not worth twenty years, that's for Not sure. Not really, no. So why peaceful Guernsey? Many criminals regard the Channel Islands as the jewel in the crown of European drug markets, spending months planning how to navigate past customs checks and years building up the skills required to work in this lucrative marketplace. Enticed by heavily inflated drug prices, these organised criminal uh, organised crime groups work closely with a constantly evolving group of wealthy island criminals to earn profits that can far outstrip those available on the British mainland or continental Europe. They could buy a kilo of MDMA or ketamine for a few thousand pounds in Britain, France or Holland, then net £30,000 for their haul once it's landed in Guernsey. 
and amphetamine, which costs £1,800 for a 70% purity kilo on the dark net, sell, uh, tends to sell at an 11% purity for £20,000 in Guernsey. Wow. So massive markups. Mm. The street price of ecstasy pills regularly reaches £35 in the Channel Islands compared to the usual fiver on the mainland, and cocaine often sells for $260, uh, £60 a gram, while cannabis fetched up to £100 a gram during last year's uh, last spring's lockdown, yeah. it's possible to earn the equivalent of England's median annual salary, which was uh, just over thirty-one thousand pounds, by exporting a single kilo of illicit drugs to, to Guernsey. So it's easy to see why people attempted to operate in this highly profitable setting. Unsurprisingly, the Bailiwick has seen its share fair share of drug busts over the years as opportunists capitalised on the buoyant lo- local market for illicit drug uh, substances. From MDMA hidden in whiskey bottles to thousands of pills concealed inside computer monitors, there have been many failed attempts to satisfy the demand for recreational drugs. It's no different on the neighbouring island of Jersey, where Scouse drugs boss Curtis Warren was arrested in 2009. The former Toxteth resident who appeared on the Sunday Times Rich List was caught at the the heart of a conspiracy to import £1 million worth of cannabis. He is still in jail after failing to pay the £128 million proceeds of crime application instigated by the Royal Court. What a surprise. Why are illicit drugs so expensive on Guernsey? Guernsey is only 90 miles from Southampton and 60 miles from Normandy, and it has both a ferry port and an airport. Brits don't even need to flash a passport on arrival. So what's making illicit drugs so expensive on this easily easily accessible island? Ironically, it's heavily enforced prohibition. Vigilant border controls and a hefty police presence means it's extraordinarily difficult and important uh, to import and source recreational drugs in Guernsey, the island's law enforcement claims. This supposedly heavy approach to controlling illicit substances is often heralded heralded in states of Guernsey. In states of Guernsey annual reports, court hearings and news articles, it's hardly supposing surprising that officials are keen to push this narrative as studies consistently show that the greatest deterrent to keen to drug supply is the perceived likelihood of being caught. But controversially, the, sta- uh, the States of Guernsey also issues, issues exceptionally lengthy prison sentences as a deterrent to traffickers. The local judiciary is adamant that long jail terms serve to reduce su- the supply of illicit substances in the Ballywick. Hannah and Carly's co-defendant Chris Beer received a 19-year jail term in March 2022 for planning the anticipated handover of drugs. This is stark contrast to a uh, stark contrast to England, where a tracker. A trucker received a 19-year prison sentence in 2021 for importing half a ton of cocaine. Small t- half a ton of cocaine. Small-time dealers receive a jail term too, even if they're busted with a few ounces of Class B drug. Of a Class B drug. Some are bienvenue, uh, a 38 weeks pregnant. Mum with a toddler 
to a toddler, was sentenced to two years and four months sentence in prison during 2020, August 2021. She was convicted of supplying 84 grams of cannabis to friends. And a young DJ mother of a primary school-aged child, Ellis Pike, was sentenced to five years and nine months five years and nine months imprisonment in March 2022 after cops found 109 MDMA capsules and 34 grams of weed at her house. Yeah, so um, people who use drugs risk uh, long jail terms. Being caught in possession of even a tiny quantity of Class A drugs is almost certain to lead to jail time, according to a report by Professor Harry Sumnall of Liverpool's John Moores University. A total of 68% of drug possession offences in Guernsey resulted in a custodial sentence, compared to only 4.3% in England and Wales. So, gee, you, you get convicted, you're going to jail. Um, yeah, absolutely. Two thirds of the, over two-thirds of the cases. A nurse with PTSD was sentenced to three years in prison for ordering 3.8 grams of cocaine and 15 Xanax in the post during summer of 2020. And 22-year-old chef Hayden Price was given three years in prison after being caught with just one ecstasy tablet. Voltface spoke to Chris Beer, who was in Guernsey's Les Nicoles prison after his drug importation conviction. He says, quote, most of the people here in prison are for small amounts of drugs and had really good jobs before being arrested. I've met a banker, an engineer, business owners, but even the threat of jail and losing their career or the house hadn't deterred them. Yep. Darknet purchases come with a hefty risk. This tough stance on the possession of controlled substances is compounded by the fact that Guernsey's Royal Court doesn't differentiate between personal use and supply in drug importation cases, arguing that any importation adds to the, quote, available stock, end quote, on the island. Three defendants trying to overturn overturn this case law in October 2021, but they were unsuccessful with the Royal Court stating, quote, we have little doubt that if we were to relax these guidelines to identify a lower starting point for small amounts of drugs, there would be an increase in drug trafficking Activity with criminal gangs packing packing drugs in smaller amounts to take advantage of the higher rewards available through selling drugs in Guernsey. The Royal Court failed to cite any evidence to support this deeply held belief and, in fact, there's significant empirical evidence to highlight the inaccuracy of this controversial claim. Professor Alex Stevens of the University of Kent says, quote, It sounds as though this legislation is targeted towards a supply model that relies on street corner dealing to get drugs to consumer, consumers. Rather. But this form of selling has been in decline for years during to, due to the rise of smartphones and the internet. Critics fear that by failing to amend the legislation that requires the court to ignore whether a defendant's importing for personal use or profit, policymakers are bringing more people into contact with the justice system due to the evolution of the 21st century drug market towards digital orders. It sounds like they're stuck in the old 
um, yeah, stuck, days. Yeah, yeah, and the records going round and round and round and stuck on the same yeah, yeah jail the same, and yeah. put him in jail. Bring him out, put him in jail, set him up, do it again. Bring him out, put him in jail, set him up again. If they last that long, if they last that yeah age. Quote, in drug law enforcement, we often see ineffective and harsh sentencing. While the certainty, certainty and swiftness of punishment remains very low, a tiny proportion of drug offences leads to arrest. Those that do tend to take months to drag through the courts, he remarks. Professor Sumner comments, quote, It's important to, that legal responses are proportionate. Targeted and have the intended effect. Intended effect. If the objective is to reduce drug-related harms to the offender and to others, then a prison sentence is unlikely to be successful. And that's what the evidence shows. Well, um, that's the major problem. It always has been. As I said, jail does not is not therapeutic. There's nothing therapeutic. It is simply the university of crime. And it costs a lot of money to incarcerate people. Absolutely. It could be used for the amount of money it costs to keep one person in jail for one year is phenomenal. Mm. Yeah. Way more than it costs to keep them in treatment little despite the fact that treatment doesn't work, but then neither does jail. No, exactly. Um, look, we haven't got time to finish the piece, but it's essentially saying organised criminal groups um, capitalise on this perception of harsh, harsh policing and big jail terms to justify charging vast prices for illicit drugs, whether it's an import or street level. Without this extra cash, they'd simply supply customers on the mainland, mainland or in neighbouring countries where they perceive the risks are lower, um, they say. Perhaps you could just whip through the last it paragraph. It keeps going on. Look, it just it goes on and on and on. The bottom line, heavy punitive sanctions haven't led to a reduction in drug-based drug harms. Um, on the tiny neighbouring island of Sark with its population of 600, the outgoing top cop, Mike Forson, said there's no way of stopping drugs being smuggled. It's like outgoing again. Yeah. No way of stopping drugs being smuggled onto land and reaching the community, proving that even the smallest of places isn't impenetrable to traffickers. All of which begs the question whether Guernsey and the rest of the world should acknowledge the futility of trying to completely eliminate substance use, illicit substance use, and instead find a more realistic way to manage drug-related harms. And that could be applied that could, to yeah, so many places. Across the board yeah. and across the years, really, Jeffrey. That's the major problem. It's not a across the years at all. In every year we come up the same data yep. and that same data leads us, unfortunately, to the same stupid bloody conclusions. Yeah, you know, even in Guernsey. This doesn't work, <laughs> this doesn't work, therefore let's do it a bit more, Yeah, only harder. Yeah. I find this up. It's, it's really depressing, isn't unbelievable. it? Unbelievable. And, you know... We're allowed, this is the crazy thing about it, we're allowed to have two of those, you know, stupid marijuana plants, right? To grow, yeah. To grow. Yeah. And you can get God knows how much of it, but as long as it's on the plant, it doesn't matter. Mm. You take it off the plant and weigh it up and make it, it becomes what? A different Four uh, kilos yeah. of drug. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you become 
you become a supplier because that's the amount it takes. Mm. Or under that, actually, is the amount it takes to be a constitute supply. Look, one day we're going to look back at um, Prohibition and wonder how it went on for so long. We'll be dead. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Jeffrey, one day we'll be up in <laughs> heaven. We'll be laughing. Yeah. Yeah, but not yeah. yet. And I've just found... But historians will reflect then. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah, or her historians. Yeah. Take your pick. All right. Um, look, I thought it was interesting that I'd, we'd never done a story from Guernsey before and it seems yeah, like the same no, look, it's fascinating stuff. Applies. It's interesting that they – This is these are all the um, little islands in between England and France. Yeah, the Channel or Islands. Or England and Europe, the Channel Islands, and they are really interesting. And the fact that they are more punitive, not less punitive, mm. and that, but that they're – you know, their stories are just as um, hard line, mm. if not more, more so, so, than anywhere else in the world. They're so old-fashioned. Yeah. And yet they are closer to the source of practical in, uh, information and pragmatic treatment mm. stories, yeah? I think it, they need It just drives me crazy. Some reform. <laughs> oh, do they? What? All right, that uh, takes us to the end of another show. I hope some of those stories were interesting. Um, do let us know if you have any issues or countries you'd like us to talk about or anything you've yeah, heard about. Yeah, I know Tab asked me if we took um, requests for music and I said, well, if you've got a copy of the song, um, give it to me and I'll yeah, play absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely, we'll play it. But yeah. You know, but she, she was a bit loath to give me the CD, I suspect. Right. Nonetheless. Um, Thanks for listening. Yes, it's really nice to know that you were listening and we send our love out to you and we hope you are looking after yourself and staying safe. Stay safe. Remember 860 infections. Yeah, keep your mask from, on. From um, Omicron yeah. yesterday. And it's it's just crazy. Yeah. So when you're on public transport in particular. Yeah, put it on. Put your mask on. Take care, everyone. We, we we'll love be back your... again next week. Uh, stay safe, look after yourselves. And Bye. And here's our theme song. <laughs>